Now, certainty of the law is the next thing we're going to be looking at, legal certainty. And and certainty in law is it's, it's a very good thing because you do need consistency. People need to know how it is. They need to regulate their behavior. So if they wake up in, in the morning, they it's a case of, okay, I know what the law is and this is what's required of me. And if I wake up the next morning, I know what the law is and this is required of me. It's not a case of, on one morning I wake up and corporal punishment is forbidden and I, can, I can't eat my child. The next morning I wake up and corporal punishment is not forbidden and I, and I can eat my child. Right? There needs to be a certain level of consistency there so that people in certainty, so that people are able to regulate their conduct accordingly. And if you look at another example, in fact, that comes to mind is with the, with the state of uh, disaster, with the COVID regulations, things were constantly changing. Then it was a case of there could only be 80 people. Then there was a case of it could be 50 people. Then it was a case of um, you couldn't get alcohol in certain days. And then it was a case of it wasn't unlawful to get alcohol in certain days. And it was chopping and it was changing. And there was, of course, a reason why it was chopping and changing because it needed to keep up with certain circumstances. But, of course, that created a lot of chaos because as citizens, we were often not sure, okay, what is next? What does the league, what does the law say? And we needed to constantly keep abreast and constantly keep, keep in the know and keep alert of what the laws actually are because they were chopping and changing so much. So like I said, a certain level of legal certainty is invaluable in the law. It allows us to know how to regulate our conduct accordingly. So there's this concept that you will come across referred to as stare decisis in law, a fancy Latin term. There are still some fancy Latin terms around in law. So what stare decisis means is essentially we're referring to binding precedent. So we know what 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 precedent is they'll often see in, in movies and then they will say X versus so-and-so or Y versus so-and-so, right? So started diseases means that where a court is faced with a matter and the facts of the matter are substantially similar to a previous case that a different court had pronounced on, or in fact what that same court had pronounced on, then the court is obliged to follow that earlier decision. So the court can't break ranks, the court can't go rogue, the court can't do whatever it likes. The doctrine of stare decisis allows for a certain level of consistency because it says that when a court decides a matter, the court has to look to previous judgments and where the facts are substantially similar, the court ought to apply the same reasoning and the same logic and teach the same outcome on the basis of that earlier decision where the facts were substantially the same. But then the question comes, okay, so you need a level of legal certainty and there is this doctrine of stare decisis and courts are required to follow previous decisions, but should courts always do so or should or should the law be capable of a certain level of change? Should the law be predictable no matter what or should there be a level of uh, unpredictability in the law? Should the law be subject to change, right? So an important thing to remember is that when it comes to the law, when it comes to legislation, you're talking about language. You're talking about something that is written in a book somewhere, in a statute, right? You're capable of retrieving it off the internet and reading the black and white letter law of it. But the whole point is that when it comes to language, when it comes to something that you are reading, language is always open to interpretation, which means one person can read a particular provision in a law and say, I think that it means this. 
and a different person or a different lawyer can read a particular provision in the law and say, I disagree with you. I don't think it means this. I think it means that. Right. And because of the fact that law is uh, written in language, right, uh, statutes, your legislation, those forms of law, because it's written in language and because language needs to be interpreted, law, by mere virtue of the fact that it's written in language, is always open to change because it's always open to a different interpretation. So, in fact, let me give you an example of when I was in practice. Uh, we were facing a particular court case and in the court case, the minister had certain powers under law and she could publish certain regulations and under these regulations it would say that all schools had to have electricity and all schools that have to have water and etc etc right so the minister had this power to publish these regulations but when we looked at the statute it said that the minister may publish these regulations and in fact a large part of my job at the point in time was to find a way legally speaking to make the word may read like a must so in other words i had to find a way to show that the statute could be interpreted that the schools act in that instance could be interpreted in such a manner that even though the word may was used the minister was still obliged to do so so that's how crazy it can be when it comes to law and language and the way in which things can be interpreted that a lawyer can even make out an argument in our case, that a make and mean must. So the point that I'm trying to get to is that, yes, the law has a certain level of certainty, but when it comes to legislation, the law is written down. Those laws need to be interpreted. Different individuals will interpret it in a different way, which means that the law is always subject to change because language is always open to interpretation. Now, the other reason why law is subject to change is because the values in society are consistently changing and, and technology is advancing. And so more things need to be made provision for or <clears throat> current situations need to be made provision for. And the values in society is also changing. So that needs to be taken into account. So because we have this changing values in society, we will see laws changing. And so I can give you an example of when I was about eight years old uh we lived around the corner from a from a shop from a corner shop right and my dad would tell me go and buy me my rothman's blues so and so and so 30 pack right and i would run to the shop for my dad and i would say to the shopkeeper can you please give me a packet of rothman's blue 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 30 whatever the case may be then the shopkeeper would give it to me and I would run back to my dad and I would give my daddy cigarettes because I was a good child and I went to go and buy cigarettes for my dad. Right. I don't think my dad would be happy knowing that I'm telling you the story now. The point of the matter is that since then society evolved and the values in society evolved in such a manner that society recognized the danger that children might have access to tobacco and cigarettes and they might by virtue of having access to that uh, products by virtue of having access access to tobacco products might engage in behavior that is unhealthy for them right and <clears throat> bad for their health 
So the law then evolved because of the, va the values in society was changing. The law evolved. And so now you will see legislation was brought into effect, which means that now if you want to send your child to the store, heaven forbid, to go and buy your packet of cigarettes, the shopkeeper would say to your child, I'm sorry, I cannot sell this tobacco products for you because under the legislation, under the law, I'm forbidden, for, I'm forbidden to do so. I'm not allowed to do so, right? And that is because the morals in society and the values of society had shifted in that period of time. And so the law shifted in accordance with those values. <clears throat> now, if in our society at the moment, so in the past, uh, judges would have to think about the values of society and use words like public policy and what does public policy say. So that was in the past, but now in the present, uh, thankfully and luckily for us, we now have a constitution. And the constitution, remember we spoke about the fact that the constitution was the it law of the land, the supreme law of the land. This constitution also embodies a certain level of values, right? The constitution speaks about the value of dignity and the value of equality <clears throat> and the values around freedom. And so the constitution itself is a document that that judges can look to when judges are trying to determine what uh, what values have to apply in a given case. Because a judge might be faced with a particular case where the judge needs to figure out, okay, I need to apply values here. I need to apply public policy to reach my answer, to find my judgment, to make my finding. But I don't know what public policy is in this instance. So the judge can go and the judge can look to the constitution and say, okay, this is what public policy is. So an example of that, for instance, is the Carmichael case. And in the Carmichael case, what happened was that this woman was attacked and she was raped by someone who was guilty in the past of having engaged in similar conduct. But when he came before... Uh, in the previous in a previous instance when he came into court and he had to be prosecuted the and the bail decision had to be made the prosecutor said i am not going to oppose bail so the prosecutor didn't take into account the fact that this particular accused person had previous convictions didn't bring it to the court's attention and this man was allowed to go on bail and while on bail he then um, raped and assaulted miss carmichael right so Ms. Carmichael wanted to hold the state accountable. Uh, they wa she wanted damages from the state. She wanted to hold the Minister of Police accountable for the fact that um, this Minister of Justice, in fact, for the fact that this particular prosecutor failed to oppose bail. And even though the law at that particular time didn't make provision for that, the court in deciding the commercial matter, the constitutional court looked at the constitution and looked, for instance, at the responsibility of the state to protect the citizens and to protect Ms. Commercial against all forms of violence. And on the basis of applying that constitutional value that found itself in the constitution, that is embodied in the constitution, on the basis of that particular value that is now present in the constitution, the, the court was able to apply those values and ultimately find that that yes, under the law, Ms. Carmichael did have a right to claim damages against the government, right? So that's an example of the changing values in our society. Now, 
when it comes to the law and, and judicial discretion, so what does the judicial discretion refer to? When we're speaking about judicial discretion, we're speaking about the a judge who is now faced with making a decision uh, and the level of space that judge has to use his own reasoning, right? His own discretion, his own thinking of what the situation should or shouldn't be, yeah, what the legal outcome should or shouldn't be. Yeah. And you will have two very different types of judges, right, the, that are categorized. The one is referred to as judicial activists and the others are referred to as uh, judges who prefer to um, exercise deference, right? We refer to it as judicial deference. And judges who exercise judicial deference of the opinion that look, at the end of the day, if you look at our constitution and if you look at the setup, it is ultimately for the legislator to make the laws and it's ultimately for the executive to apply the laws. And so the court is going to be very hesitant to apply it's the court is going to be very hesitant to uh hold the executive or hold the legislator um accountable where it's not clear cut where it's not certain from the law whether or not they should be um held accountable in this particular instance whether the court should find against them where it's not very clear cut from the law then what the judge will do is that the judge will exercise judicial deference and acknowledge the fact that ultimately it's for parliament to make the law it's for the executive to apply the law and the the, the judiciary's role is merely i mean it's for the executive to enforce the law and the judiciary's role is merely to apply the law so it's very much a standing back approach that uh, judges who exercise judicial deference will take right and this is an important concept when it comes to judicial discretion because at the end of the day there is always the danger that if judges use too much of their discretion then judges own prejudices can come into come into account right some let's say we've got a, a judge who's uh, very conservative and of the opinion that women should know their place in society and is now faced with a judgment a judgment concerning um, the quality of women right if we give that judge a lot of discretion then the danger exists that his own conservative attitudes around uh, women and the place of women in society will creep into a judgment when he's required to decide a case around uh, equality and the, and the rights of women, right? So it's very important that judges don't have too much discretion. But then again, there shouldn't be too much deference at the same time because the judges ultimately under the constitution are obliged to hold the executive to account. They are obliged to hold parliament to account it is the responsibility as a third arm of government to make sure that parliament is doing what parliament needs to be doing and that the executive the president and his ministers that the cabinet that the executives are doing what they're supposed to be doing right and so you can't be too differential to other arms of government as a judiciary so we distinguish between judicial deference and judicial activism and when we're talking about judicial activism, we're talking about judges who are of the view that, yes, here is the law, but I should use my discretion creatively when I interpret the law and when I apply the law. So you can see how this links a bit with uh, the whole concept around natural law versus legal positivism, right? Judicial deference leans more towards uh, legal positivism and judicial activism leans more to natural law.
So let me give you an example of judicial activism. Uh, during the, the lockdown, right, uh, we had children that were not at school and as a result of which we had hundreds of thousands of children who rely on the school nutrition program not able to eat because they weren't attending school, right? So it became a case of who is responsible for ensuring that those children are able to access the nutrition. Ordinarily, one would think, okay, that's a case of social, uh, of, of um, that's a social issue, right? That's a social welfare issue. That's not necessarily an education issue. But a particular NGO brought the Department of Basic Education to court and argued that it was the Minister of Basic Education who had a responsibility. She was duty-bound. She had a legal obligation to ensure that children were able to access the nutrition program even when those children were not physically reaching school. And the judge ultimately found in favor of this NGO and ultimately found that the Department of Basic Education, the Minister of Basic Education, had this responsibility. And of course, this is quite a, a, a mental leap if you think about it, because these children are not in school, they are at home. So how, how can you hold the Department of Basic Education accountable? But through a creatively written judgment and, and a creative interpretation of the law, uh, the judge was able to use judicial activism and to use the creativity and to interpret the law in a manner that would effect social change, that would ensure that hundreds of thousands of children across South Africa do not go hungry because of the mere fact that uh, COVID regulations state that they can't come to school and receive what would ordinarily be, most likely be the only meal that they would receive for that day. So we see in that instance the judge using their discretion in a manner that is creative and is aimed at effecting social change.